You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 291 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. As you guys will recall, when we left off last time, it was the night of May 15th, 1863, and the stage was set for what will turn out to be the climactic battle of the Vicksburg Campaign at Champion Hill. As the first streaks of dawn appeared in the eastern sky on the morning of Saturday, May 16th, a train on the Southern Railroad, traveling east from Vicksburg to Jackson, was stopped by Union soldiers in Clinton. Since Pemberton knew Clinton was in enemy hands, it's a bit of a mystery why exactly he would have permitted an eastbound train to pass Edwards Station. But at any rate... At any rate, the crew of the captured train was escorted to Grant's headquarters, and upon being questioned, they said that a rebel army of about 25,000 men was at Edwards Station and ready to attack the Federal rear. This, of course, was actually a remarkably accurate assessment of Confederate strength and intentions. Well, Grant was happy as a dog rolling in the grass at this news because it meant that for the first time in the long campaign, Pemberton was out in the open. This was the opportunity Grant had been waiting for since the previous fall when he first marched down into northern Mississippi. Grant set the Army of the Tennessee into motion at once. During the morning of May 16th, federal forces advanced westward on three roughly parallel roads toward Edwards Station. On the Union left, that is to the south, two divisions led by Andrew Smith and Frank Blair marched along the Raymond Road toward Edwards Station, which was the same route that Pemberton was using. On the Union right to the north, the divisions of John Logan, Alvin Hovey, and Marcellus Crocker moved over the Jackson Road. Between those two columns, on the appropriately named Middle Road, marched the divisions of Peter Osterhaus and Eugene Carr. Grant accompanied McPherson up on the Jackson Road, possibly to provide a steadying hand if needed. McClernand was on the middle road, with strict orders not to bring on a general engagement until the army was concentrated. Sherman and two of his divisions lagged a day's march behind, 
delayed because they had stayed in Jackson to complete the work of destruction in the state capital. At any rate, they wouldn't arrive at Champion Hill in time to participate in the battle. Pemberton, meanwhile, gathered his senior officers at Ellison's plantation. Incredibly, he was unaware that Grant's army was only a few miles away and headed in his direction. Around seven o'clock that morning, the distant boom of cannon provided Pemberton with the first indication that all was not well. Minutes later, Colonel Wirt Adams, whose Mississippi cavalrymen were manning a roadblock to the east, rode up and announced that Yankees were approaching in force on the Raymond Road and driving in his pickets. As Pemberton questioned Adams, a courier arrived with Joe Johnston's message of May 15. Scanning the note, Pemberton learned that Jackson was in enemy hands and that Johnston still wanted him to proceed to Clinton. For whatever reason, Pemberton now decided to comply with Johnston's wishes, even though, well, even though that made absolutely no sense, since the Federal Army was now just a stone's throw away here. Pemberton's lieutenants were stunned that he would even consider such a thing, since, well, hello, the Federal Army was now just a stone's throw away here. Nevertheless, Pemberton was set on marching to Clinton, so he ordered that everyone turn around, which meant the rear of the rebel column would become the front, which meant the train of 400 wagons would now be at the front of the army. Obviously, an incredible amount of time would be needed to turn all the wagons around on the narrow road or push them off to the side so the infantry could take the lead, but time was a luxury Pemberton didn't enjoy. With the sounds of skirmishing steadily intensifying just to the east, Loring tried to bring Pemberton back to reality. He suggested forcefully that the army form a line of battle, quote, the sooner the better, as the enemy would very soon be upon us. By now, everyone in the Confederate Army was aware that something unexpected was happening. Except for the troops in Bowen's division, though, no one was ready for a fight. One soldier observed that, quote, As yet, no preparations had been made to make or receive an attack. The artillery was parked, the horses unharnessed, the general staff officers galloped around furiously delivering orders. Such obvious signs that Pemberton had been caught with his pants down, so to speak, did little to inspire confidence in him. Lieutenant William Drennan, a staff officer in Loring's division, recalled that Pemberton, quote, gave orders in an uncertain manner that implied to me that he had no well-formulated plans for the coming battle. Adding to Pemberton's woes was his increasingly strained relationship with his unhappy subordinates. Lieutenant Drennan told of an uncomfortable and unprofessional scene featuring Loring and two brigade commanders, Winfield Featherston and Lloyd Tillman. Quote, I sat under a tree and listened to quite an animated conversation, the principal topic being General Pemberton. They all said harsh, ill-natured things, made ill-tempered jests in regard to General Pemberton, and when an order came from him, the courier who brought it was not out of hearing before they made light of it and ridiculed the plan he proposed.
By mid-morning, the situation became more ominous as skirmishing also erupted farther north on the middle road, and Pemberton finally abandoned the ridiculous idea of marching to Clinton to join Johnston. He hurriedly deployed his divisions along a three-mile front on a line running southwest to northeast. The Confederate line of battle blocked the Raymond Road to the south and the Middle Road to the north. That meant if the Federals advanced on only those two roads, the rebel position would be a tough nut to crack. The dominant feature of the battlefield was Champion Hill, a partially wooded elevation rising 140 feet above the surrounding area. Winding its way west, the Jackson Road abruptly turns south here and passes over the bald crest of the hill. A short distance south of the hill, the Jackson Road intersects with the Middle Road and Ratliff Road. From this crossroads, the Jackson Road turns west and crosses Baker's Creek en route to Edwards Station and Vicksburg. And just a bit of foreshadowing, but the Jackson Road Bridge across Baker's Creek, the same one the Confederates had used the previous day, was the only escape route should things go badly for the rebels. Unknown to Pemberton, the largest of the three Federal columns was advancing undetected along the Jackson Road toward his left flank. However, Stephen Lee's brigade of Stevenson's division was located on the far left of the Confederate line and, concerned for the safety of his left flank and the unprotected crest of Champion Hill, Lee directed one of his officers to reconnoiter the Jackson Road. Thirty minutes later, the officer came galloping back, frantically waving his arms and shouting that the Yankees were approaching on the road in great strength. Lee realized that the Federals had to be stopped, lest they roll up his flank, capture the crossroads, and possibly cut off the rebel army from Vicksburg. In response to the looming threat from the north, Lee shifted his regiments to the left to cover Champion Hill. As the Confederates moved into position on the crest, Federal soldiers on the Jackson Road swung from column of march into double line of battle. Seeing that the rebels held the commanding hill to their front, Union artillerymen wheeled their guns into position and unlimbered. As the cannon roared into action, the bloodshed at the Battle of Champion Hill began in earnest. After surveying the situation, Grant ordered an attack. Hovey's and Logan's divisions, 10,000 strong, moved forward in fine style with flags flying. The long blue lines extended beyond the Confederate left flank and posed a serious threat to the troops on Champion Hill. To meet this danger, Lee shifted his regiments even farther west, creating a gap between his brigade and the rest of Stevenson's division, which was defending the crossroads south of the hill. Shortly before noon, the Federals reached the crest of Champion Hill. With a mighty cheer, they surged toward the Confederate line. A Georgia soldier recalled that, quote, The attack broke upon us with great impetuosity and vehemence in overwhelming force, and in a manner wholly unexpected and unlooked for. 
The lines swayed back and forth as charge and countercharge were made, but the strength of numbers prevailed, and the blue tide swept over the crest of the hill, driving Lee's rebels before them. Grant sent a courier forward, saying, Go down to Logan and tell him he is making history today. The Confederates retreated from Champion Hill in disorder. Victorious Union forces captured the crossroads and the Jackson Road escape route over Baker's Creek. Confronted by disaster, Pemberton ordered his two remaining divisions to counterattack. Leaving one brigade to guard the Raymond Road, Bowen and Loring hurried northeast along the Ratliff Road toward the all-important crossroads. Stifling clouds of dust choked the 4,500 soldiers of Bowen's division as they swept past the house that served as Pemberton's headquarters. The Confederate commander stood waving his straw hat and urging the men forward. One Missouri soldier later remembered how, quote, We passed General Pemberton and his staff standing in the road, almost in the edge of action. His manner seemed to be somewhat excited. He and his staff were vainly endeavoring to rally some stragglers who had already left their commands. With characteristic abandon, Frank Francis Cockrell led the way with a large magnolia blossom in one hand and a sword in the other. As his Missourians advanced toward the roar of battle, they passed a group of local women cheering them on by singing Dixie. A soldier in the 2nd Missouri said, At the sight of this, the boys shouted zealously, and I could not refrain from shouting just once, expressive of my admiration for the perfect abandon with which the fair creatures gave their hearts to the cause. Bowen's rebels struck the disorganized Federals near the crossroads. One historian described the futile efforts of the Yankees to check the counterattack by saying, quote, it was like trying to stop the tide with a broom. The Confederates drove the enemy back three-quarters of a mile and regained control of the crossroads and the crest of Champion Hill. Grant was momentarily shaken by the abrupt turn of events, but maintained his composure and personally rallied a group of fleeing Federals. Confederate success, however, was short-lived. Union forces continued to arrive on the Jackson Road and checked Bowen's rebels. The battle here raged fearfully, wrote one Confederate, who noted that one unbroken, deafening roar of musketry was all that could be heard. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Determined to hold the ground his troops had gained, Bowen sent back an urgent plea for reinforcements. Tense moments passed as he waited for support, but Loring's division, supposed to be following directly behind, was nowhere in sight. As it turned out, Loring had been directed onto the wrong road and so didn't arrive in time to capitalize on Bowen's initial success. Meanwhile, on Champion Hill, as the Confederates desperately clung to their positions, the ominous cry for ammunition started to ring out along the Rebel line. But no resupply was available because the Army's ordnance wagons had left the area earlier in the day. Bowen's men scrounged among the cartridge boxes of the dead and wounded in search of ammunition, but with little success. Faced with overwhelming numbers in front and on their left, the Confederates began to yield ground foot by foot, hoping all the while that Loring's division would arrive to even the odds. The rebels' hopes were dashed when, on the Federal side, Osterhouse's and Carr's divisions on the middle road fought their way forward to within a few yards of the crossroads. You see, unwilling to violate Grant's orders not to bring on a fight too soon, the normally aggressive McClernand had delayed an all-out assault on his front until he was certain the time was right. But now his men battered their way forward behind Bowen's right flank. That meant that if Bowen remained where he was any longer, he risked the threat of being totally surrounded, so he ordered his men to fall back. But as the Federals pressed forward, the Confederate withdrawal quickly turned into a rout as thousands of rebel soldiers streamed back through the woods in a race for survival. The Confederates barely reached the crossroads ahead of the Yankees advancing on the middle road, and they suffered heavy casualties as they ran through a murderous fire. Unable to stem the tide of panic-stricken men, Bowen rode to inform Pemberton of the catastrophic turn of events. Pemberton's army was faced with destruction, since the Federals controlled not only the vital crossroads, but also the Jackson Road Bridge across Baker's Creek. At this critical moment, Loring finally arrived on the scene and formed a line of battle on a ridge south of the road. Although a difficult subordinate, Loring was full of fight and prepared to attack. However, no sooner had he issued the order to advance than one of Pemberton's staff rode up and directed him to fall back on Edward's station. The commanding general had decided the day was lost. Confederate soldiers were captured by the dozens as Union troops swept over the crossroads and pushed after the retreating rebels. Stevenson's division was shattered and couldn't be relied upon for further service as his men fled back to Edwards Station in panic and confusion. Bowen's division, probably the best in the army, also had been badly mauled. Only Loring's division was in any shape to continue the fight, having seen little action, and so it was ordered to cover the retreat. Fortunately for the Confederates, work parties had labored throughout the day under the supervision of Samuel Lockett, now chief engineer of the Army, to rebuild the washed-out Raymond Road Bridge across Baker's Creek. 
As the water level of the stream fell throughout the day, they also were able to make a ford passable for artillery. With this single avenue of escape now open, the rebels fled westward in disorder. Lloyd Tillman was ordered to protect the bridge with his brigade at all costs. He died accomplishing that mission, but his battered brigade, along with the rest of Loring's division, was cut off from Edward's station. Loring, utterly disgusted with Pemberton, made little effort to link back up with the rest of the army, and instead he and his men used an obscure country lane to slip away from the Federals and eventually made their way east to Jackson. Grant's victorious soldiers crossed Baker's Creek later in the afternoon and pushed on in pursuit of the retreating rebels. About 8 o'clock that evening, Federal troops reached Edwards Station. The scene was illuminated by blazing supplies set on fire by the fleeing Confederates. With the village secured, the Union soldiers bedded down for the night for some much-needed rest. The cost of the Federal victory at Champion Hill was high. 410 men killed, 1,844 wounded, and 187 missing or 2,441 casualties out of about 32,000 men engaged. For the Confederates, Champion Hill was an outright disaster. Pemberton's army lost 381 killed, 1,018 wounded, and 2,441 missing, or 3,840 men out of about 25,000 engaged. In addition, 27 pieces of artillery were lost. A dozen of these guns, along with their caissons and limbers, and seven ammunition wagons, were abandoned by Loring's troops as they slipped away from the battlefield. Deeply shaken by the defeat at Champion Hill, Pemberton now sought only to run for the dubious protection of the Big Black River and the Vicksburg defenses. As he rode west through the darkness filled with despair, perhaps he realized, as British General J.F.C. Fuller observed a century later, that, quote, the drums of Champion Hill sounded the doom of Richmond. Late that night, John Levy, a surgeon with the Confederate Army, took pen in hand to jot down his impression of Champion Hill. He lamented that, quote, Today proved to the nation the value of a general. Pemberton is either a traitor or the most incompetent officer in the Confederacy. Indecision, indecision, indecision. We have been badly defeated where we might have given the enemy a severe repulse. We have been defeated in detail and have lost, oh God, how many brave and gallant soldiers. Levy's bitter sentiments were echoed by hundreds of Confederate soldiers as they streamed westward that night, away from the battlefield at Champion Hill, cursing their unpopular commander and declaring, It's all Pym's fault. Throughout the night of May 16, 1863, demoralized Confederate soldiers crossed the two bridges, a road bridge and a railroad bridge, over the Big Black River. 
After crossing the river, the road and tracks continue west to Vicksburg. But east of the stream, on low, flat ground, a line of field fortifications had been constructed a few weeks earlier to protect the railroad bridge against possible attack from Union cavalry raiders. Now Pemberton ordered Bowen's division and a fresh brigade of Tennesseans commanded by John Vaughn to man the entrenchments long enough for Loring to show up and cross. Pemberton, of course, didn't know that his fractious subordinate was already marching away in the opposite direction, away from Vicksburg and the commanding general he detested. And so Wing Loring was never going to show up at the Big Black. Dawn on May 17th found the Federals starting out from Edwards Station in pursuit of the reeling Confederates. McClernand's 13th Corps led the march. As the Yankees neared the Big Black, they spotted the rebels manning a line of earthworks on the near side of the river. McClernand deployed his units astride the road and had his artillery open fire on the enemy with shot and shell. Brigadier General Michael Lawler moved his brigade forward into a gully on the Federal right. The Depression sheltered his men until they were a stone's throw away from the enemy works. Before more than a fraction of Grant's army was on the scene, Lawler decided to take advantage of his advanced position and ordered his troops to charge. The Federals surged up out of the gully and raced across the open ground between them and the enemy. They quickly filtered through obstructions and swarmed over the rebel earthworks. Startled by the sudden attack, the Confederates put up only a brief fight, then broke and ran. The line of defenders disintegrated from left to right as regiment after regiment bolted for the river. Throwing aside their weapons, thousands of rebels scrambled across the bridges. When a traffic jam developed, many soldiers jumped into the water to swim across, and more than a few were drowned. Before all of the men could make it to the bridges, the bridges were set on fire, along with a dot, a steamboat that had been moored crossways in the river to serve as an improvised crossing point. With the bridges and ship in flames, the remnants of Pemberton's army streamed back toward Vicksburg, while the Federals rounded up the unlucky rebels who had been caught on the east side of the river and now found themselves prisoners. The battle at the Big Black River, such as it was, was another Confederate calamity. Pemberton lost nearly 1,800 men in the debacle, most all of them captured, along with 18 guns and five flags. Incredibly, federal casualties came to fewer than 300 killed and wounded. John Pemberton was overwhelmed by despair. He dejectedly told a member of his staff, Just 30 years ago, I began my military career by receiving my appointment to a cadetship at the U.S. Military Academy, and today, that same date, that career is ended in disaster and disgrace. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Champion Hill, Decisive Battle for Vicksburg by Timothy B. Smith. In the interest of keeping the story moving along, we fairly flew through the Battle of Champion Hill 
and the clash at the Big Black River. But if you want to dig more deeply into what happened, then we highly recommend you pick up Smith's book. It's a great battle study and deserves a place on your Civil War bookshelf. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Speaking of books, we want to thank William and Phil for their donations this past week. We turn most donations right around to buy books on our wish list. It's kind of amazing, but there's always more books to buy. Then we also want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Terry, Brett, Matt, and Naya, James, Andrew, and Dennis, and Espen, and Adam. Thank you, one and all, for your support of the podcast. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.